This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. Matt and Patrick here. Patrick told me not to be concerned. It was guaranteed slam dunk lead pipe lock that the Vikings were going to win last night. And he proved me, he proved he is right. I didn't say it was going to be quite a stone cold Bet the house. Pipe lock. Bet the house. Yep. I, I put my entire <laughs> wife's work on the line on this game. Uh, Broadcorp will join us. He is in his purple happy dance, and uh, he will join us in the 4 o'clock hour. Plus, I'll, we'll talk to him about him, about Emmer. Uh, Cooligan, uh, he'll talk about Emmer as well. That's going to come up here in the, the uh, 4 o'clock hour. We'll get to uh, <laughs> that in a second. I got to be careful out there. I want to just, uh, you know, you know, you need to be careful on the roads. It is pouring out at times. I was out, uh, had uh, coffee with a friend of mine, um, Nicole, just delightful person, love her blue hair, very cool. And she and I had coffee this morning, and, and as I was coming back, it just, all of a sudden, I was on the Crosstown, and it was just pouring out. And was, what ended up happening is, and I felt sorry because, you know, this guy clearly was, it was more than just me, but... So there was a there was a truck, semi-truck in the right-hand lane. I was in the left-hand lane, and he was on the lane that's going to go to 35W southbound. And the semi came over into my lane pretty far. And I had no other option, but I had to kind of go over. And the guy that was in the lane was started honking like crazy and stuff like this. And I don't know if he didn't see the semi or what, but because it was raining pretty hard. He let me know, uh, dude, apologies. I'm sorry. That one was on me, I but I didn't want to get taken out by the semi. None of us died. Hope you have a good life. All my best to you there. Uh, it is. I, they said a quarter-inch rain. I kind of believe we're close to an inch. It is pouring out. Lightning, thunder. Very, a very early spring storm in late October. God, we have broken this planet. Um, but if you, you are on the roadways, uh, anticipate rain, anticipate heavy, you know, slow conditions. And uh, anticipate it being uh, probably a little bit of a, a longer commute out there uh, for you there. So, yeah, you know, just be careful out there as you, you're heading out on the roadways. Uh, 952-946-6205 and 952-946-6205, a lot to get to today. But we have to start off with what I consider to be one of the strong points of Minnesota, Dart. Uh, if you did not see the, and I was going to bring this up yesterday, but this is an incredibly complimentary article that was in the Guardian newspapers. If you've ever thought the crop art at the Minnesota State Fair was uniquely Minnesota thing, well, you turn out it's right. According to the British newspaper, The Guardian, which took a deep dive into the quirky seed works with the Friday piece called Mona Lisa Made of Seeds, the Quirky Craft of Crop Art. 
creativity in agriculture. Merv with crop art, the crop that uses grain, seeds, and leaves as its materials. Minnesota leads the way, declares author Colony Little. Really? Really? Colony Little. Uh, a sci-fi, a cheap sci-fi novel will reject that name as too quirky. The article delves into the history of Minnesota's crop art, which is competing in the Minnesota State Fair, strictly requires the use of plant materials grown in the state, growing all the way back to 1966, all the way back to 1966. I was born in 68. Shut up with that. Uh, Going all the way back to 1966, when the Beatles had their fourth album hit the track. Stop it. Uh, If debuted at the Great Minnesota Get-Together. The Guardian also explores the meticulous craft and time required to do crop art, the lives of those who have dedicated themselves to it in a few controversies. They include the father-daughter team of Amy and Stephen Saup, S-A-U-P-E, whose Mona Lisa replica depicting the famous muse against the uh, backdrop of the Minnesota State Fair took first place honors in the Natural Colors Amateur Division this year. Did it? I did. I can't. One of the truth is, I don't know how many divisions they have and how many different groups they have, but uh, I did you see that one? When did you go to the fair? At I all? did, but I did not see the seed art. You, you did go to the fair, but you didn't see that. Yeah. It, so okay, because it was it is a popular thing. They need it. They definitely need a better location for it. Uh, I think they're going to have to. You got I, I, nothing against it. I love going to the horticulture building. Get me some horticulture. Who doesn't love bees and scarecrows and giant gourds? Oh, the flower show, delightful. You've got that thing jammed in there with the corn judging, which, you know, I've got some questions. Uh, you know, I understand uh, Elwin won it this year, but I was looking at Gracie's, and uh, that that uh, that that ear of corn was just downright sexy. I just don't know what you're talking about. Anywho, you got it in there, jammed in there, and you just don't, you know, you have a line that goes out into the horticulture building and basically does spirals around in there because so many people want to go and see it. Uh, so I think you're going to have to do that, but here you go. We're no, and something else we're known for Minnesota getting the proper run we deserve. Thank you. Thank you. Guardian newspaper, um, from the same country where they basically roll a, a, a large wheel of cheese down while they carry their wives down a hill. I don't know. I have no, what is that? I, I have no idea, but you know. They've got some weird competitions over there, usually involving alcohol. I'm just going to let you know. I lived there for for three and a half years. They have they have yeah nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. I still do not think Tom Emmer is going to become the Speaker of the House. I'm going to start off with this, even though we are going to be Tom Emmer heavy today. Yee. Uh, we are going to be Tom member heavy. Uh, I want to start off the fact that he did win his internal, the way the Star Tribune is writing this, the Star Tribune, um, <laughs> Star Tribune, it's, it, it's as they've crowned him the king. He wins nomination for House Speaker. Well, no, he's won the closed door thing. To my knowledge, they don't even have a vote scheduled on the House floor because he wants to try to make sure he has the votes to get the speakership, which <laughs> I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I'm going to, these are, so, so he's, he's going to be the next guy to basically lose on the House floor, unless there is a story today 
that the Democrats are willing to vote for a Republican candidate if it means getting them over the edge. Now, here is th- that is an interesting dichotomy in itself, because even if Tom Emmer had, say, 210 votes, just needed seven or eight Democrats to vote with him, I think the mere fact that Democrats would be voting would drive away at least, at least a hundred more of those votes. So he would, he would hopelessly get beat because the Republicans are terrified of looking like they're working with the Democrats. And so that's going to be my guess is that even if he only needs a handful of votes, you know, say, you know, one of the most moderate Democrats out there, that the Republicans, that if if they got wind that their vote would be with a Democrat to elect Tom Emmer, that they would vote against Tom Emmer because they just don't want to be on the record like that. So I, I think that that's, I, I just don't think it would happen. Plus the fact that I don't think Hakeem Jeffries is going to give you those votes for free. You're going to have to give up a concession somewhere. And considering you are probably getting a litany of you need to arrest every Democrat. You need to get sell their house and give it to me. All the money goes to me because of because they're Democrats and the founding fathers wanted all Democrats jailed. That's the truth. That's in the it's in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. We the people, but not them. Not them. They didn't want them. So you know he's getting that stuff right now. On the other side of it, um, the majority of two dozen or so holdouts against Tom Emmer are members of the ultra conservative House Freedom Caucus. This is from the New York Times. And many of them continue to say they will vote for Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, the hard right chairman of the Judiciary Committee who failed to win the speakership last week. So a majority have already said that they are going to still vote for Jim Jordan. And once again, I think he got seven votes to play with, maybe six, you know, seven votes to play with, I think. So if the majority of two dozen holdouts are against Tom Emmer, that's over. And it wasn't like he got a, a massive majority either. Uh, I, I think it was like 110 to 76 over the next second place guy. So I, I just don't see this howler monkey exhibit in the Republican House coming together behind him. I just and like I said, unless there is some sort of arrangement that's already been that that just enough Republicans and enough Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries get some concessions, they'll do it. But I, I think that he'd be doomed. I think the Republican majority would would get rid of him as soon as they could. If he got in there because the Democrats helped him out, I just honestly, they're in a mess. They are an absolute mess. Representative Jim Banks of Indiana is among those who says he won't vote for Emmer on the floor. Um, I can't go along with putting one of the most moderate members, moderate members of the entire Republican conference on the speaker's chair. Banks said that betrays the conservative values I came here to fight for. Wow. Wow. That is some that is some level of delusion there. He went on to add, I hope we can find a different choice. Banks said, adding Tom Emmer's not a conservative. Troy Niels of Texas has said he's been pushing Trump for speaker, tells reporters he's voted president in the roll call when it came clear that Tom Emmer had well was well had well short of 217 votes. We are again back to where we started. Neil said we're out. We're at. We threw it out. Our we we threw our all stars out. And that's where they're at. So now I want to go back to what was said here. This is Jim Banks of Indiana. He accuses Tom Emmer of putting one of the most moderate members of the entire Republican conference in the speaker's chair. He calls Tom freaking Emmer 
one of the most moderate Republicans today. Let's just go on a tour of history, shall we? U.S. Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota is one of the several Republican politicians who say they will return contributions they received from the head of the white supremacist group linked to last week's mass shooting at the Charleston Church. Eric Holt, or excuse me, Earl Holt III, president of the Council of Conservative Citizens, has given tens of thousands of dollars to Republican candidates and campaign committees over the past five years, including $500 to Emmer and $3,200 to his predecessor in the 6th Congressional District, Michelle Bachman. That according to the St. Cloud Times. Dylan Roof, the man accused of killing nine people at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina last week, said he learned about the brutal black on uh, uh, the brutal black on white murders from the Council of Conservative Citizens website. The Southern Poverty Law Center lists the council as a white supremacist organization who was openly funding Tom Emmer. And only when it came out that this was who these guys were did Tom Emmer say, well, I guess I'll return that check. Holt gave seven separate contributions to Bachman between 2011 and 2013, made his donation to Emmer's campaign in October shortly before the November election. In Bachman's campaign filings, Holt listed his occupation as slumlord on four of the contributions, according to the Times. Um, yeah. Yeah. The moderate Tom Emmer. Moderate. And he was getting, he's getting bankrolled by that guy. Uh, during an October 9, 2010 televised debate, Emmer said he would oppose legislation to combat school bullying against gay and lesbian young people. Emmer, who voted against the anti-bullying legislation as a state lawmaker, said that teachers are the most responsible for halting bullies, but suggested that the threat of lawsuits keeps them from doing so. I don't think we need more laws. I think we need more understanding. So he was perfectly fine with bullying as long as, and we got, well, we got to take it back in time because that's back when I started at this radio station. I remember this. Back in the old six o'clock show when I was here, uh, I remember when Emmer said this and basically said, oh, yeah, you can bully gay and lesbian kids. That's OK with him. And reminder at that point, And, you know, just it's, let's look at the moderate Tom Emmer here. That was a virtue with the Republican Party was be able to bully gay and lesbian kids to death. That was a virtue within the Republican circles. The moderate Tom Emmer. Tom Emmer, the head of the Republican effort to take back the House, mocked a child during a Wednesday town home event in St. Cloud. This is from a few years back. Morgan Miles, an 11-year-old, asked Emmer what he would do to stop the efforts to separate families in the U.S.-Mexico border, according to the St. Cloud Times. Rather than express appreciation for the question, Emmer attacked the 11-year-old child. Did you write that yourself? Emmer asked, pointing at the notes Miles was reading, uh, Miles was reading from. Um... Now, reminder, he never did kind of come out and talk about the Trump policy of ripping infants and children away from their parents and separating them. And by the way, we should let it be known, we still have about 400 of the kids. I want to give the Biden administration a gold star for Herculean effort. They had over a thousand kids who could not be relocated or reconnected with their own parents because the Trump administration kept no paperwork. They just yanked like, well, I, I mean, I, you can imagine the times where stuff like this has happened, where a authoritarian, authoritative soldier-like police state has ripped an infant or a young child from a parent and separated them with no paperwork, no nothing. And then they never, they just, they lost track of who the family members were. 
And here's Tom Emmer, who apparently didn't have any problem with that policy, upset this nosy little 11-year-old is asking me a question. <laughs> How dare you? Uh... In 2010, Emmer sponsored an amendment to the Minnesota Constitution that would allow the state to nullify federal laws. Funny story. He didn't seem to be that much for that later when someone else was in the White House. That's right. Think about that. He wanted to nullify uh, federal laws. Yeah, okay. Uh, In October 2022, this this is once again the moderate, the moderate Tom Emmer, as he's been labeled by Indiana Republican banks. One of the most moderate members of the Republican Party. In an October 22 CBS televised interview, Emmer was challenged for posting a video on Twitter that showed him firing a fully automatic machine gun with the caption, Fire Pelosi. As the chair of the National Republican Congressional Committee, NRCC, Emmer led the 2020 election efforts to win the majority and replace House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The post occurred just days before the home invasion and attack on Pelosi's husband in California which was inspired by right-wing rhetoric. You know, moderate. Putting Fire Pelosi on a gun. And then someone attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But I will say this about Banks. He isn't lying because that's what qualifies as moderate in the Republican Party. Nancy Pelosi's name on a gun, nullifying federal laws, chewing out an 11-year-old for a question you just don't like. Pro, pro, pro bullying of gay and lesbian kids or, heck, funds from outright racist organizations. That's considered moderate. And that should tell you exactly when you look at the conservatives. We are, this is a Republican Party. The reason why the libertarians don't matter anymore is the Republican Party has jumped past them. The Republican Party is bordering on fascism at this point. And that's not me basically just being, you know, a dinkus. No, that's, that's just who they are. This is Banks, a Republican, calling this guy, who I just explained all this stuff about, a moderate. He is, in, in, in the 1980s, Tom Emmer would probably be one of the most conservative members, if not the Strom Thurmond-esque of the House in the 1980s. And today, he's too moderate for my tastes. God help us all, man. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show on a Tuesday. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. What was that there? Bonnie Westland has called for Dean Phillips to step down. Um, yeah, this was a report I just saw on Twitter a moment ago. Um, let me. Uh, well, let's see. Well, let's let's pull up the 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 Twitter verse as we can imagine here. Um, yeah, if you can find that, let me know and see if if uh, you know if you if. If that's that's true, because that's interest. That's an interesting development. Um, yeah, I know he's kind of. Um, 
I, I he's he's definitely burned some bridges within the the, the Democratic Party, um, and so yeah, I I. <laughs> interesting it may have been taken this was from i believe it's from brian Bax that um i know he just moved on uh he was formerly with uh mpr news but uh um now it's gone so that might have been taken down i'm not sure all right well we'll we'll, we'll keep an eye on that 952-946-6205 952-946-6205 and i can't remember wasn't emmer going back to emmer here I could have sworn Emmer had some problems because in his early political career, there was um, there was some associations he had up in the sixth district, which ended up he had to really distance himself from because they were well. Let's just put it this way: uh, either racist or white supremacist. Now uh, I get it. You you generally don't you know push away, uh, you know, the people that basically are going to vote right. But then when you come under um, a little bit more of a microscope, you have a tendency of kind of like the, the the guy, the money he got from the guy down in South Carolina, who was, you know, the guy that inspired Dylan Roof. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you have to separate yourself up. But, you know, you know, we have to understand how far to the right this country has gone. I, I was watching, um, I was watching last week tonight, and uh, you know John Oliver was talking about one of these consulting companies, and he talked about something I have talked about for years, which is the the what's destroyed American companies, is this idea that the executives are owed everything and the workers are owed nothing, and it, it's 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 just one little part of Oliver's discussion about it, but it is it's this age of greed that we live in. And greed facilitates fascism. It just does. It it pushes a country further and further to the right. And now we look back on the 80s and we like lifestyles of the rich and famous where there was this money worshiping that was going on in this country. Obscene money worshiping. And you realize the fault of all this is it's created this, this, this push to the extremist far right that is hard to even comprehend. I mean, I'm dead serious when I say this. Tom Emmer in the 1980s would be, would if you just took Tom Emmer today and you put him in the U.S. House in the 1980s, he would be the equivalent of Strom Thurmond in the U.S. House back then. He would have been one of the most extremist, far-right House members. Today, his own party considers him too moderate. And that is because they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And they create these districts where a Republican can't lose. And when you get into that situation, what happens next? You have to become the most extremist you possibly can be. Because you're going to get challenged if you're not. If you're not for, you know, shooting you know the the, the the liberals as they run from you with your guns that you basically are you're you're one of those moderate snowflakes <laughs> that's kind of who these people are so uh what do you have for me patrick i have some breaking news this has been uh confirmed by jake sherman from nbc news tom emmer's speaker bid is over and there we go <laughs> Will the Star Tribune's headline writer ever recover? I don't know. 
cocky bastard. Oh. <laughs> God, what a freaking mess. You did this. The Republicans, bravo. You, it's not like you fell down the, a flight of stairs. You fell down the flight of stairs from the Joker movie, man. <laughs> and then you took the elevator back up and feel, keep falling down those same stairs. It's like uh, Sisyphus, only instead of a rock, you're falling down the stairs constantly. You basically, when you put, when you created the bellwether, the standard, the high water mark for your political party was a howler monkey that can't stop throwing freaking feces. That's when you guys got into this mess. <laughs> oh, I remember. Don't you remember? Don't you remember the quality? Let me actually, let me, let me pull this up here. It's like. Uh, it has a Star Tribune. Uh, their, their headline writer must be crying right now. They still have Emmerwin's nomination for House Speaker. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're still scrambling to rewrite their headlines. I mean, this literally just broke in the last five minutes. Oh, God. They're just weeping uncontrollably. All right. Hey, I, I know then uh, we'll have talk to Cool again uh, about this, and I got I got uh, uh, Broadcorp coming in to talk Viking stuff, so we'll touch on them. Uh, what was your favorite not speaker moment for Tom Emmer. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Once in a lifetime. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 954. The speaker is dead. Long live the speaker. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I I don't uh god I cannot How are they this bad? You remember Stein was talking about this when they won back last November and he's just sort of like you know this was this is he, he even said I remember him on one of those shows saying I don't think these guys are going to be able to lead because that that the, there's just there is no cohesive nature to it it's a bunch of it's 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 there is the idea of community and working together for the Republicans. They're a bunch of individual Neanderthals all hanging out by their own rock, screaming, "Get away from my rock!" And then looking at a bunch of small rocks, which are their followers, saying, "Did you tell me? See how I yelled at them about getting away from my rock?" You know, this is this is who they are. They all there are too many Republicans who want to be that vote that denies someone the speakership. That's who they are. <laughs> and we all suffer. Oh, God. Man, you know what would be nice right now? Beetlejuice. Have you seen the musical? Sounds fan-freaking-tastic. Oh, as a matter of fact, I'm feeling a little uh, randy. One the most dignified thing that's happened to your caucus in the last month is a basically a you know two robot people at a Beetlejuice thing trying to figure out what sex is. I I don't know. Wait, did, did that? I'm gonna thrust, move, parry. Tell me, human, what is love? Oh. Uh, I love the theater. Uh, who, and who doesn't love the theater? 
Okay, I gotta. I got other things I gotta talk about. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Oh, I just ha- I just have this mental image of all like the speaker hopefuls in like a cage at a gladiator, gladiator you know, coliseum, and they just lead one out. And the rest of them kind of look wide-eyed as he leaves and heads out onto the arena. And then five minutes later, like, all right, who's next? Are you not entertained? (laughs) I'm entertained. I think this is hilarious. Oh, God. This is just hilarious. Mind you, in the state of Minnesota, the DFL had a one-seat majority in the Senate, and they got all that stuff passed. Wow. All right. So let me move on to other things here. 952-946-6205. In a rare move, a Hennepin County judge rejected a negotiated plea agreement that would have spared a defendant prison time for his role in a deadly attempted carjacking in Minneapolis more than four years ago. District Judge Michael Byrne said Monday he didn't find 20-year-old uh, Cyan Braveheart particularly amendable to probation as attorneys on both sides had argued throughout the three-hour court hearing. Burns ordered the case for trial unless another agreement is reached by December 14th hearing. The decision sent a shockwave through the family of Stephen Markey, a 39-year-old paralegal from Plymouth who was killed the afternoon of June 11th, 2019. I'm feeling hopeful that perhaps we will have some prosecution and they will actually prosecute this case sincerely and not just fold up and be a defense attorney's. Markey's mother, attorney Christy, Catherine Markey, said after the hearing, I'm very proud of Judge Burns. I am thankful that I have people like him on the bench in Hennepin County. On the day of the crime, Braveheart, then 15, and co-defendant Jared Osman, O-H-S-M-A-N, then 17, drew semi-automatic pistols at Markey near the intersection of 14th and Tyler Avenue Northeast. Charges say Osman told police he ordered Markey out of the vehicle and shot him after seeing him reach for something. Braveheart fired at the vehicle as a bleeding Markey drove off. The teens fled and were arrested after crashing a stolen SUV in St. Louis Park. In the weeks leading up to the hearing on Monday, Markey's family and supporters had sent letters to Burns Asking him to reject the negotiation, the family held press conferences, circulated an online petition, and attended rallies outside the courthouse to raise awareness about the plea deal, which they said was unacceptable outcome lacking accountability. Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty, who offered office negotiated the rejected deal, has drawn criticism for her handling of murder cases following teens, uh, involving teen suspects. She's campaigning on treating juvenile offenders differently with a focus on rehabilitation. Braveheart addressed the court Monday by apologizing to the Markey family and saying that she wants to help with prevention efforts for troubled and disadvantaged youth. Uh, I take full responsibility for my actions that day, and I have no one to blame but myself for the situation. I can't go back. I wish I could. It's the only way I see forward. The negotiation for Braveheart to avoid prison time went well below the uh, presumptive guideline sentence of nearly 22 years. Osmond pleaded guilty in 2020 and remains in prison under that sentence. Prosecutors say Braveheart's public defenders argue Braveheart played a lesser role in the murder because Osmond admitted to firing the fatal shot. But Burns said Braveheart shot at Markey as he drove away, which endangered the public even more, considering that the city was around 5 p.m. It appears to me that the parties are both asking me to consider that Mr. Braveheart, because of his development, is both too young to the point where he makes impulsive decisions while at the same time asking me to give him credit for making what appears to be, in his mind, extremely rational decision to only fire at the vehicle. The two of those can't exist in the same space. I agree wholeheartedly with this. Now, I'm going to go into this, and I am going to 
I want to explain something. Mary Moriarty, um, and I've said this before, and I'm not going to shy away from this. This is not what you campaigned on. You campaigned on, uh, on, on you know, justice reform, which I think everyone in this city could agree had to happen in some shape or form. It clearly was wrong. You can't have the Hennepin County prosecutors prosecuting Jaleel Stallings when there's there's clear evidence he had done nothing which they were charging him with. I mean, it really was obnoxious. So you clearly have a case here where what was said was going to happen. I don't ever remember her saying, I'm going to give teenage homicide, you know, suspects or, you know, uh, you know, people that were at the, you know, participated in a homicide. I'm going to give them DoorDash and Netflix and they're just going to stay at home. I, I don't remember her saying that. And I want to make sure we're, we, we understand, once again, justice reform is something I very much, I voted for Mary Moriarty because she was talking about this. This is not what I'm talking about. This is a, a theory, basically. That, that, that if, if we take 100 kids and that would have been prosecuted and jailed for their actions before and instead give them, you know, probation and home detention and counseling that, that you're not going to have problems again. And the reality is it's imploded horrifically in every other place they have tried this, this, this modern mentality. It is imploded horrifically. Because first of all, you guys completely seem to ignore the victims. You guys consistently do that. You ignore the victims who have a right to some level. I mean, I I talked about this when I had my drunk driver hit me. Did I want the guy locked up for life? No. But I don't think that if you nearly kill somebody because you were drunk as a skunk, you should be basically get nothing. Most people are not looking for life sentences here, but at least a sentence where there is a punishment involved. You know, a year at juvie and then home detention for Netflix and DoorDash, that's not a punishment, no matter how you try to paint it. I am not exactly the most moderate Democrat you'll ever meet. For God's sakes, I got 13 and a half years on this station. Go back and listen to the tapes. I have been far more critical of them at times than I have been at Republicans, the moderate Democrats. Am I the most progressive? No. But I know a lot of liberal Democrats who are not happy with this whole thing. And I can virtually guarantee that Mary Moriarty is not going to win another term because a lot of people I know who voted for her have said to me the same exact thing, that there is no way on the planet that they are going to support her again because this is not what they voted for. I get I, I dreamers. I get it. Matt, come on. There's a lot of things to consider. Hey, I am not having a problem with that. And I think individual circumstances, as a matter of fact, I would make an argument that individual circumstances which lead an individual to a crime are something that are woefully inadequate when, they need, when we need to look at them in regards to things. I'm not saying it's a negator. I'm not saying because the guy had a bad upbringing, whatever the case may be, that that means no punishment. But I think you do 
maybe not go for the maximum if you have definitive problems and that this kid's life was already taken a turn the second they were born. I have no problem with that. But the problem here is this, of multiple levels. One, as I said, you don't, you guys with your little cause here are more than willing to throw the victims of these crimes under the bus because of your feeling of your glorious, you know, the, you know, diamond in the rough movie screenplay. You think you're freaking writing when you do this stuff. He was a bad guy and he did some bad things, but we didn't put him in prison and now he's the president of the United States. No, that doesn't happen. You've fallen in love with a theory and you argue to me individual circumstances should be factored in. And I have no problem with that. But then the next thing you say to me is this, Matt, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, their brains haven't fully formed. Stop. That's not an individual thing. Now you're painting with a very wide brush. And you're saying that every child is basically should be excused from every crime they ever could possibly commit because of brain development, which is wildly insultive to the vast majority of 15, 16, and 17-year-olds who do not murder anybody or fire a gun at a car that that individual's already been shot. That doesn't happen. And I understand, once again, individual circumstances. But if you're going to argue individual circumstances, then put together a case that does that as opposed to try to paint with a wide brush. And I get it. It's expensive to do that. It's expensive to take the money and do a full update, psychological profile, historical precedence with every individual case. I get that. But this whole idea of brain size not developed is some sort of end around attempt on a societal standard, which just doesn't freaking exist. Stop it. Stop it. You guys, you've fallen in love with the, with the story without actually thinking about what you're doing. And none of you want to go on out there and tell the family. I, you, you got a lot of people, volunteers, like, we're going to send them home to home detention and we're going to do some drum circles and we're going to we're going to hold hands and sing songs and we're going to have some counseling and he's going to be so great and none of you want to actually go to the family of the dead person and say hey i understand your 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 son your daughter your wife your husband i understand they're dead but you know do you know how great drum circles are I do not believe in throwing people in jail for the rest of their lives. I do not believe you prosecute people like Jaleel Stallings under false pretenses. And, you know, we could talk about that all freaking day. Maybe one day this week we will. But I'm sure as hell not going to just sit back and act as this this callous theory 
of a response, which once again, and I've said this for many times, it only works until the person you got DoorDash and Netflix for violates their home confinement, murders somebody else, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, he didn't follow the script of our, our wonderful Diamond in the Rough movie. We have to try really hard. Just, we'll sentence him to double drum circles. Double drum circles. No. You have to have some level of punishment for a crime such as murder. And once again, you want to present an, a defense where you say um, this individual uh, had, you know, was, you know, had brain development issues when they were younger because of alcohol fetal syndrome or drug use by the parent. Uh, they, they, they didn't have parents. They were left alone. They were raised, had to raise themselves. They went hungry most of the time. I mean, these are all things that should be factored into an individual story as you tell the story. But that doesn't mean you, when you walk into the entire process looking for a reason to make sure the guy who's the murderer walks free, you have failed the system. It's just as bad as the guy on the far right who says, lock him up for life and throw away the key. Absolutes do not freaking work. And whether that's locking him up for life or sending him home with a, with a, a stern finger wagging that you'd better not murder anybody else. All right, all right. You have failed to hold a, 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 a criminal to a justice standard. I want all of you to stop with this brain development crap. There are a lot of 15, 16, and 17-year-olds who do not murder other people. And if you want to say, well, the individual, then stop talking about every kid and 15, 16, 17-year-olds because you're trying to use a societal standard to justify an individual's actions, and that does not work because 15, 16, and 17-year-olds aren't murdering kids and other people all the time everywhere. In the same sense as grown adults, which, by the way, we've got another example, and I can't wait for the brain size argument on this one, when the individual here is 28 years old. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. A man responsible for killing a St. Louis Park father of two in May received a <clears throat> four-year sentence. What? Monday as part of a plea deal over objections from the victim's family. Relatives and friends of Antonio LeVar Moore, 37, filled the Hennepin County courtroom hoping to see Judge William Koch reject the plea deal for Demetrius Harris, 28, of New Hope. As part of the deal, Harris pleaded guilty last month to manslaughter. In exchange, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office agreed to drop a second-degree murder charge, which would have carried a higher presumptive sentence. When Harris was charged in May, Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty issued a statement saying her thoughts were with the Moore family, especially his sister, who was, he was protecting during the incident. Moriarty added that her office would aggressively prosecute this case and hold Mr. Harris accountable. Four. Four years. Oh, it must be his brain at 28. His, his, Matt, come on, man. You're ruining the screenplay. 
Oh, the diamond is rough. Four years, man. When Harris was charged in May, uh, I read that already. Moore's mother, Mary Terrell, said the plea bargain was never discussed with the family. How do you not do that? Rather, she said, prosecutors told them just about it just before Harris's plea hearing, September 18th. And you know why? Because they didn't want the victim's family to know they were about to let the murderer of their family member walk after four years. Probably less time with probation. They don't care about, as Terrell said, I got two grandkids who will never see their dad again. Moore leaves behind his daughters, 12 and 8, in a large family from the Twin Cities in Chicago who attended Harris's sentencing. Moore's mother, aunts, and siblings shared victim impact statements while his nieces in the courtroom gallery so small their feet dangle from the folding chairs. And once again, the fact they were able to read their victim impact statement doesn't mean crap if you only gave the guy four years. But Matt, he'll be thinking about what he did. He murdered somebody. He murdered somebody. Harris made a brief apology saying, sorry for your loss. uh, Terrell said Harris's sentence isn't enough. He's going to be sit there. I got two years. I'm going to watch the clock and I'm going to get out, she said. And that's the message you're sending people. Harris will be allowed out of custody in about two years. A credit for serving nearly six months in jail. Minnesota allows the remaining third of his sentence to be served on supervised release. Prosecutor Amy uh, Blagov says she knows the family doesn't agree with the plea, but no amount of time that Harris spends in, by her, behind bars will make up for their loss. What an arrogant, pathetic, and stupid argument you just made there, Amy. Hey, I know they don't agree with the four-year plea, but there's no amount of time that's going to bring back the family members. You, can, you guys can just shut up now. Shut up. Four years is enough. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? You think four years for murdering somebody is a good sentence? Charges say on May 2nd, Moore's sister called him for help after Harris punched her twice in the face. She and Harris were co-parenting their child but were not in a relationship. When Moore arrived at the Brooklyn Center apartment, the man got into a fight. Harris stabbed Moore and fled. He was arrested that night and charged three days later. Four years. He murdered, he stabbed the man to death stabbed the man to death and all he was trying to do was protect his sister i you know i just you guys are broken you honestly think to yourself that the the public the do you think the public thinks you're doing a good job do you think anyone thinks you're doing a good job outside of the criminals who are like, ah, oh, God, I murdered somebody. I only get four years. And don't get me wrong. You're going to show us all the one guy who did it, who followed the screenplay, the diamond in the rough. And you're going to sit there and say, see, didn't we do good? And at the same time, you're going to ignore the people who have not followed the screenplay. You have got to stop with this idea that you, that you, you, it's bad enough that the previous Hennepin County attorney victimized Jaleel Stallings the way he did, but you guys in the Moriarty prosecution office, you're victimizing the victims again, which in my mind is even worse. Basically going out of your way to be heartless jackasses who are pompously thinking that you're doing good 
while dismissing the concerns of not only the families, but of the community as a whole. Get off your damn high horses and do your job. Hour two is up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt and Patrick and Brett's in here with us now. Hey, Brett, how are we today? Better than Tom Emmer. Oh, God. Where did they? I I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, I, I just said this. If if any of the Republicans start trying to work with the Democrats, it's going to look like freaking Caligula without the dignity. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's just going to evolve into you know what was that uh, Sam Neill space thing where the they all went crazy on the spaceship out by uh, Neptune. You know, oh God, I can't remember the name. You remember the name of that one there, Patrick? Oh God. It's it's yeah it's gonna be like that you know just you know, just yeah um, I should mention we do now have context on the Dean Phillips comment from Bonnie Westland so um, apparently it was cite Dean Phillips's bus campaign bus national campaign bus was spotted in Ohio uh, Ryan Faircloth from the folks over at the Star Tribune just texted Dean Phillips asking about what appears to be his presidential campaign bus. His response, great-looking bus, which prompted uh, Senator Bonnie Westland, who I believe is in his district. Uh, she's Plymouth, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's time for you to resign your seat. I could not be more disappointed in you. You will never have my support again for any elected office, including your congressional seat. Make America affordable again. Pretty rich coming from a multimillionaire, because that's what it it, it, it kind of says on the, on the bus. Um, yeah, I... Um, you know, you have the chance. You have the right to run, dude. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I know a lot. I'm in the third district. I just, I don't. If, if right now there are so many people in that third district who are like, if he runs, if anyone runs against him, that yeah, in the, because remember, forget about your the, the general election. You got to win the primary. And right now, there's a lot of suburban progressives who want you gone now. And I don't, I don't see how he survives yeah, that. That isn't part of the problem, too. He's not even eligible to get on the ballot in many of these early states. It's well, too late at Nevada, this point. he lost Nevada. Yeah. Nevada's already went past it, which yeah. that's a pretty big state. So you're not on that ballot. Uh, I, I don't know. And I, like I said, and here's the question. And we talked about this with Rick Smith a few weeks uh, last week. I said, Rick, how does, is there any way in the world he's going to pry the union vote away from Biden? And he just laughed. Rick Smith just laughed. He's the most pro-union president. You're not going to get the union vote. So you're all, I guess what he's thinking he's going to do is win over moderate Republicans, but they don't vote in the Democratic primaries and caucuses. I, I, I'm not sure he's aware of that, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to go well for them. This is, this is, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. He has a right to run and everyone out there says, oh, he should run. You know, he wants to run. He wants to run. But he's going to have to eat the consequences for this, and that's on him. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Are you ready for Republicans to blow their? No, no, it's not. I got another one. Minnesota falls among the top ten safest states in the country in a recent ranking. Wallet Hub released its ranking of the safest states in the U.S. with Minnesota coming in at number eight. Uh, the ranking looked at five different areas of safety, personal and residential safety, financial safety, road safety, workplace safety, and emergency preparedness. 
Uh, personal and residential safety included factors like crime rates and police staffing, while financial safety took into account poverty and unemployment rates, as well as the number of insured residents. Road safety included driver and pedestrian fatalities and DUIs. Workplace safety looked at occupational injuries and fatalities and emergency preparedness looked into account damage from climate disasters. Based on those factors, states were given a score out of 100. Minnesota scored a whopping 59.83 with rounding up. We got a D minus. <laughs> hey, that's not failing anymore. Yeah, we are D minus. Minnesota ranked in the top 10 in three individual categories, earning the third spot in financial safety, ninth spot in workplace safety, and fourth spot for road safety. According to the ranking, Minnesota is the low, third lowest rate of tra traffic fatalities per million travelers in the country. State ranked 18th for personal residential safety, 23rd for emergency preparedness. I thought we'd do better on that one. But. Minnesota saw a decline in violent crime in 2022 after a spike, which was mirrored nationally. In 2021, it was continue to have issues with property crime, seeing the highest number of auto thefts since 2001. But once again, it's gone down. Vermont took the top spot on the list with a total score of 68.27. So number one is a D plus. So I guess we can't feel too bad. Um, Maine was a uh, 65.58. Uh, New Hampshire is 65.71. The lowest ranking state was Louisiana, 32.99. Wow, that's like that's like charter school. I know. Sorry, I'm sorry. I why would I say something like that? I'm just public school system still is better. I don't uh, know where this is on the list. I, I don't know where Florida is on there. In oh, DeSantis world. you you ask. Yeah. Well, I, maybe I should deliver for you. Uh, the bottom 10. Here you are. Louisiana. Red state. Okay. Mississippi, number the second worst. Another red state. Arkansas. Red state. Texas. <laughs> I, I sense a theme here. Florida. Fifth worst. Alabama. Oklahoma. The only Democratic state. Colorado. Montana. And Missouri. Apparently, uh, personal crime in, uh, is pretty bad in Colorado. I was looking at that. It's like, how, why is this so bad? But I was, I'd be curious about that too. Yeah. So, nine out of the ten words. I mean, and and how many times have you heard Republicans say, "Hell, I moved to Texas or I moved to Florida." Well, bye, bonjour, <laughs> good luck, travel safe. We will not miss you, and boy, are you in for a surprise when you get down there, because these those states are not good. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because these are the states that, by their law, well, they have the most guns. There should be no crime whatsoever in those states because everybody is armed, and well, that seems to not be the case. Well, it, it got to remember something for the people that scream at us about we're leaving. They're white, and they basically they 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 look at these these you know these white areas of these southern states and look at it as some sort of there's no problem there when there's tons of problems. They can eat the, the the not the, you know try that in a small town. If they try it all the time in the small town, because Jason Aldean is not talking about the white person crime, not the meth dealers or the people shooting at cops or the bar fights or the 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 people abusing their their spouses or anything like that. They're not talking about that. It's that one time where that one black family came through and took one penny more than they should have from the take a penny, leave a penny jar at the local restaurant. And then they all, we, we, we got them. We, we put them in their place. That's what they, they don't care. They, these states are pits. These states are pits. 
Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Texas, Florida, Alabama, Oklahoma, Colorado, Montana, Missouri. They're pits, and they're, they're, the crime is out of control, and, and this, is, this is what they get. This is what they get. But we, of course, live in this democratic bastion of freedom that's known as Minnesota, Canada light. That's us. <laughs> And we do better than most places. And as a matter of fact, once again, this is top 10. How many times? We like always now show up on the top 10 li- of these lists. All the time. Although mm. we did we did not do that well with the obesity one. Actually, I think we were still top 10. But this country has just fallen right off the, yeah, che- yeah, off the, off the uh, Cheeto Mountain right there. I mean, it's... it's, it's yeah, that's like the least worst award that we got. Yeah, it's, it's the, like... The least worst, yeah. Well, there used to be... It used to be like California and Colorado used to be really healthy. Not anymore, man. <laughs> Oh really? Oh I yeah, they always all... went one two with the hiking. Yeah. Well, in Colorado, right. I mean, every time you walk someplace, you're either uphill or downhill. It's yeah. it, there's no middle ground there. Um, you know, I uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's we are still top ten there, but we, that's down. But that's the case. Is like we we don't we're not these outliers. We're not like Wisconsin. And you just look at any of these: Wisconsin, Iowa, the Dakotas. They're well down the list here, and it's great because we get their kids. I mean, their kids are basically, <laughs> "Dad, Mom, I'm tired of you. I'm leaving." And you're welcome. Come on in. Come on in. Where 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 parental sprite a uh, spite lives, you know, vicariously. Minnesota. You know, that's that's where we're we're at. Good tourist slogan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your parents will really really hate this. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. I got uh, Broadcorp coming up to talk Vikings and Emmer. You got Patrick Cooligan. What are you talking about here? Yeah. So today we are touching a little bit on Emmer. So uh, and probably why he didn't end up being speaker. Uh, this was recorded before we knew he had dropped out of the race, but there's still some good information in there that will explain why he probably uh, didn't really have a chance in the first place of getting those two hundred seventeen votes. Then we'll also be touching a bit on Dean Phillips, and then the officer who faced a sentence in that beating of Jaleel yeah. Stallings. We'll be touching on that a very, very light sentence that was given to him. Well, and uh, someone showed me some video footage of him from three days earlier, where just firing rounds randomly into crowds. Yeah, and this guy is not going to jail. Uh, or he's uh, got, what, a year in the workhouse. That's it. Not even that. I and think it was only a few days. A few yeah. day, oh, 15 days. 15, 15 days. days, yeah, yeah. Then he gets probation. <sighs> Uh, Jaleel Stallings said it best. Why am I the innocent guy, the only person that served any jail time for this? Hmm. You know, and that's that's a very legitimate question. How is the innocent guy the only one that's serving any jail time for this? Uh, it's uh, Patrick Cooligan from the Minnesota Reformer joining Brett right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And right now we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, Patrick Kulikan, as we are going to be talking about some of the stories they have been working on, as well as some uh, some major uh, Minnesota news stories that are going on right now, at least in the political realm, that are kind of changing by the hour. So we'll do our best to cover those. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Well, I didn't even get a chance to announce some of these stories, but let's get right into some of the some of the big stories affecting our Minnesota Congress people. And let's start off with Republican Tom Emmer, who, as of right now, is still running for a Speaker of the U.S. House, but could potentially be facing some roadblocks since it looks like up to 26 House Republicans are probably not going to end up supporting Emmer in the end. Now, you wrote in a column yesterday kind of handicapping Tom Emmer's chances at becoming Speaker. So I'm curious kind of what 
your thoughts are on this and whether Emmer is technically Trumpy enough to become speaker, because in my mind, he seems like a pretty Trumpy guy, but it seems like to many of these 26 uh, far-right House Republicans, even Tom Emmer is not quite Trumpy enough to become speaker. Yeah, I'm sure that'll come as a surprise uh, to the listeners who think of Tom Emmer as a pretty rock-ribbed conservative um, and, and an early and, and pretty loyal uh endorser of President Trump back in, in 2016. Um, but the, uh, the reality is he, he has uh, created some separation uh, from the former president, first off by uh, voting to, uh, um, to confirm the um, 2020 uh, election results, uh, which, again, I'm, I'm sure your listeners think, well, uh, of course he did that. That was the the proper thing to do. He also uh, he uh, castigated the the violence of January sixth, and that is uh, seen as, as uh, um, a slap in the face of Trump and the Trump movement. And um, just minutes ago, uh, the the uh, the president put out on his own social media site. Uh, he uh, he said that he's a uh, Globalist, I think, was how he described uh, um, Tom Emmer, and um, and so I think a lot of people are thinking that uh, Tom Emmer, who who won the nomination inside the Republican caucus, um, despite those twenty six no's, and he was going to work on bringing those twenty six along. That when Trump comes along and says he can't be speaker. Uh, that might be the death knell of his candidacy for speaker. So it might have been a, uh, a very short. Uh, 30 minutes of national glory for Tom Emmer. <laughs> a very short, yeah, yeah, very short period of glory for Tom Emmer. But we'll see later on this afternoon when I think they might be trying to bring this to the House floor. But it, you talked about the fact that uh, he, he is viewed as kind of being a, I don't know if I necessarily more moderate, but definitely kind of a, a more of a connection maybe to the financial industry and not kind of the more populist right wing Republican that you see now. And I know in your column you brought up that he's certainly been a big ally of cryptocurrency, even though there's very little of a crypto market in the 6th District, which he currently represents right now. So I guess this just kind of goes to my point. Is this Would have he had a better chance, let's see, running in 2013 when you had a very different Republican Party as opposed to 2023? Because I guess where I'm kind of going with this is that, is he viewed as being kind of too much of an ally of big business and big financial markets with his alliance with kind of crypto? So I'm curious if that is probably playing in that playing into that too, in addition to the obvious Trump angle as well. I, I think that he, he does come from an older strain of the Republican Party. Um, he, he, was, he was kind of a more libertarian, and um, you know he's he's old enough to have been um, an enthusiastic supporter of, of someone like Ronald Reagan, and and then remember he runs for governor here in Minnesota in 2010. It's sort of the ultimate Tea Party year, um, and so I think that's really more of his uh, party, um, more libertarian. He's he's often been a, uh, a champion of banking deregulation, lower taxes, smaller government. And uh, that's that's not really Trump's party, um, and that's just not the Trump movement. Uh, even though I think that there's a lot of support, uh, obviously the numbers show it for for more Trumpian style Republicanism in the sixth district. So there's a, a little bit of a, a mismatch there. Um, 
but the the advantage he does have is that as the three the number three guy in that in the Republican conference, he has a lot of relationships with a wide cross section of of the conference. Um, and in fact, I think I read uh, earlier that Matt Gaetz, of all people, the you know, the uh, conservative or right wing firebrand, was actually working on his behalf. Um, so I think his support um, is pretty wide ranging. Um, but uh, and he also was the chair of the NRCC. That's the that's the uh, House Republicans uh, campaign arm, and he helped a lot of these guys get elected and when uh, they get elected and uh, raise money for them. He recruited some of them. He he uh, he uh, campaigned for them. So uh, he has those relationships. The problem is that they, the the caucus discipline is completely broken down, and. Um, so he's got 26 no votes at this point. Very, that's a very uh, steep hill to climb. Um, and I think, in, in my experience of caucus politics, there's a vote, and the guy who, the man or woman who wins, that's who the num, that's who's going to be the speaker, or the majority leader, whatever the case may be. And uh, that is just completely broken down in that Republican uh, caucus. And so, uh, who knows how long this is going to go on. Well, let's talk now about another uh, congressperson from Minnesota that's been in the news, and we'll go to the Democratic side with Dean Phillips, who looks like he is ready to announce a run for president of the United States as he'll possibly be challenging uh, Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Uh, Already on Twitter, there was someone who spotted a Dean Phillips for president campaign bus, so that kind of lets the cat out of the bag in terms of what his plans are. But I'm curious uh, who exactly he is planning on appealing to with this campaign, because I'll I'll take this back to the speaker's race as well, where Phillips recently put out a tweet laying out some conditions saying that uh, he would be willing to vote present, thereby reducing the threshold Republicans would need to elect a speaker if certain conditions were met. So sort of going off on his own with possibly negotiating with Republicans. So he's been over the past year or so, trying to sort of establish himself as almost kind of being this maverick type of Democrat uh, that doesn't necessarily go along with the party lines right now. So I'm, I'm curious with this presidential campaign, kind of what the reaction has been from the DFL. Well, he hasn't officially announced it yet. And who exactly he is trying to appeal to in this race? Because as I mentioned, he's not exactly friendly with some members of the Democratic establishment right now with this possible campaign. Yeah, I mean, I, I over the summer you and I talked, and I wrote a column saying, like, I think that Democrats ought to listen to Phillips about the dangers going into this next mm-hmm. election cycle with a president whose whose poll numbers are down, and especially with young voters, and that the president's age was a real a real problem. And I, I applauded uh, Phillips for raising these issues, and and he was encouraging other folks to, to get in and have at least a nominal primary, um, and I and I applauded that effort. Um, I, I'm really uh, not thinking this is a, a wise move by Phillips, uh, either for himself or for the party. Um, and this, this doesn't look like it's going in a, a good direction at all. I mean, he is, uh, um, his campaign, like on the bus, it's just something like make America affordable again. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you don't really want to be giving the, uh, the opposition ammunition like that. Uh, he's gone out and hired uh, Steve Schmidt. He's kind of a, um, you know, he's every every Democrat's favorite Republican. He was John McCain's campaign uh, uh, 
campaign manager, I think, both, both in 2000 and 2008, um, and or at least definitely in 2008, and uh, just kind of a mercenary guy who must have cost a fortune uh, for Phillips to hire him. Um, and uh, I, I just don't think there's, like, much heft to this, uh, to this effort. Um, he, he doesn't, he needs to get some Democrats on board and he obviously has it. The other thing is, is that, you know, we're in the middle of this international crisis that the president seems to be, in, in my view, uh, handling pretty ably here. Um, and so it just seems like a bad look, um, to be, um, running against him. Uh, so, um, I still stand by the, the idea that, that Democrats, uh, would be better off with at least a nominal primary. I just never really thought that Dean Phillips was the guy who should be running it. and um, certainly don't think that uh, uh, today either. Yeah, we'll have to wait for the official launch since it looks like that is uh, probably going to happen just given the hints that he's been dropping and now well, we're literally seeing the campaign bus driving around that says Dean Phillips for president. I want to focus on another story that you guys have been working on for the reformer and covering from co- covering f- uh, for quite some time, and that has to do with the police beating of Jaleel Stallings. Now, just to refresh your memory, going back to May of 2020, uh, Jaleel Stallings was outside protesting against the police brutality and killing of George Floyd, and he was shot in the chest with a rubber bullet from an unmarked white van at uh, at night at one point during those protests, and he shot back at the van in self-defense. Again, that was an unmarked van. By the time he realized the van he was shot was an unmarked police van, it was then too late as officers beat and kicked Stallings repeatedly while he lay prone on the ground, resulting in facial fractures. Criminal charges were originally brought up against Jaleel Stallings, unbelievably, but those were dropped. But now we have an update in this case, as one of the officers that was involved in the beatings with Stallings has been sentenced. As part of the police assault on Stallings, one of the officers has been sentenced as former Minneapolis officer Justin Stetson, Stetson rather, is banned from serving law enforcement, will serve 15 days in the county workhorse, workhouse, was ordered to pay about a $3,000 court fine, and he must enroll in anger management courses and cannot use firearms and will serve about 30 to 90 days of community service as well. So... Um, looking at the sentence right now, I think there are a lot of people that are thinking, well, maybe this officer should have gotten more. And that certainly seems to be the reaction from Stallings as well, as it seems like uh, he thought the officer possibly should have gotten more from this case, from this sentencing as well, correct? Yeah, and I, I just want to correct something you oh, said yeah. about the charges against Stallings being dropped. That He was actually, he faced a jury of his peers and oh, he was acquitted. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he had to undergo, uh, you know, a year of a uh, very difficult process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you, you, you fracture somebody's eye socket, you, you generally expect you're going to get um, more than a little bit of house arrest. Um, but that's, uh, that's the, uh, that was the sentence. Um, and the other issue that uh, Jaleel Stallings brought up is that uh, Stetson is apparently the only one who's going to face charges. Um, so, uh, and in fact, we also know that, um, the, the sergeant who, uh, was manning this team, uh, going around, uh, f- for lack of a better word, joyriding around the city and shooting 40 millimeter rounds at folks. Um, he actually took a, some kind of workers comp, uh, settlement. So, um, 
so it's it's even worse than you know he was not only was he not prosecuted he was not fired and he actually got a settlement so um luckily uh i shouldn't say luckily i i should say um that uh Jaleel is really trying to make something good out of this and he's taking a good portion of the city settlement money uh the million and a half dollars uh, to to create a nonprofit that will work for police reform, um, and certainly uh, wish him the best of luck there. Um, it's been quite a uh, quite a road, um, and it's been really uh, fascinating, um, certainly for our reporter Dina Winter, who's followed this from the get go, including the uh, starting with that acquittal uh, a couple of years ago. I want to back up to something you had mentioned as well, the fact that Stetson is likely to be the only officer facing any charges in this case. I'm, I'm curious why exactly that's going to occur and why that's going to why he's going to be the only officer sentenced, because if I remember correctly, it, it seemed like the, there were several officers involved in the in the beatings of Stalling. So I'm, have we gotten any reasoning as to why he's the only person facing charges or or is is there just a lack of evidence or? Uh, from prosecution saying we wouldn't have enough to possibly get these other officers charged because that that seems interesting. Only one of these officers is going to get charged in this case. Yeah, they didn't, generally don't tell you why they they're not prosecuting. I mean, they, I think they just don't think that they mm. uh, they don't have as sound a case. I mean, in the case of Stetson, he did most of the the beating, um, and they have a lot. I think it's all a lot of it's on it's all on video, so it's. Um, and he and he was clearly on video. The beating really continued after uh, Stallings was clearly unarmed, and and he had uh, I and mean, he was subdued. There, there was he was actually handcuffed. So um, I think they just had a, a, a airtight case here, um, and, and the others would be more complicated. And let's be honest, I, I think prosecutors are probably uh, not real um, eager to to prosecute cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, there there is some truth to that. I, I would uh, definitely agree. Well, we are just about out of time. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Uh, by the way, make sure you check out another uh, piece they worked on uh, by Madison McVann talking about the lack of child care uh, workers in Minnesota. You can check that out over at minnesotareformer.com, as well as the other stories we covered for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Again, go to minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Yes, usually we have him on to talk politics, but he is also our Vikings expert. Michael Broadcorp is kind enough to join us today to talk about the happy times that have returned to Minneapolis-St. Paul after what happened yesterday at the uh, U.S. Bank Stadium. Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate the time today. I am so excited to be here today. I didn't know how this was going to go. But I did my homework last night. I was there with my daughter at U.S. Bank. I'm ready to go today. Okay, were you were you were at the game then? I was at the game, sir. How? Okay, so the the, the view from the TV side 
was a shocking amount of 49ers fans there. Was that the case or was it just, you know, they, you know, like the TV broadcast do where they basically make it look like, you know, a handful of people are a lot more than they are? So a couple of things. You're spot on. Uh, my daughter noticed it right away. I, I got in there. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of red here. There's a lot of red here. And then the other thing that amplified it quite a bit is you've been inside U.S. Bank and they had the high V advertising, which is bright red. And it just, when that went on, plus with all the red that was there, I would say to you that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe on a Vikings Packers game, there might be a little bit, there might be more balance. But there was as close to the opposition being in the stadium that I've ever seen before. Bright red, they were energized, they were excited. Um, but And I think they had a lot of reason to come in and be confident and cocky. It didn't work out that way, though, and what a great game. What a well, great game to be a part of. So would you say about a third of the stadium was, was 49ers fans? Yes. No, about a third. Yeah, okay. I would say that to you. I mean, I, I consistently go... You know, my wife and I go, she's a Packers fan, which I've disclosed before, so I consistently go to the Vikings-Packers game. And that's a good environment. That's a good crowd. This was the most, aside from a Vikings-Packers game, it's the most I've ever seen inside the arena, I mean, inside the stadium. And it was just noticeable, like, wow. You know, my family that I was with were like, wow, there's a lot of red here tonight. The the Vikes get the victory uh, yesterday, 22-17, uh, as they beat uh, San Francisco I think the statistic of the game, and this is one that I am stunned, and I mean stunned by, Kirk Cousins was not sacked once by that defense. I don't know what happened there, but that is the most, I mean, to a point that's even unbelievable. If I was to say, if you were to say that Cousins was only going to get sacked three times in that game, you'd think, great, that's going to be great for us. They didn't get to him once the entire game. There's two things I want to make sure I say in this in this interview correctly. I don't want to say I want to make sure I say NFC North and not fall back to the history of what the, the the name of the division used to be called. And I also wanted to talk about Kirk Cousins. He had the offensive line was great. He had more time, ability to move. There was just a noticeable difference. And it's the environment by which we have consistently talked about being amateurs as we are professional Vikings fans, but amateur sports and analysts, that that's the environment where Kirk Cousins needs to succeed. He needs to have some time. And last night that was on full display. Uh, offensive line did a great job protecting him. He had more mobility, uh, just good sight lines, and he was just a, a, just a solid quarterback last night. The there was there was some talk before the game that said that the Cousins' biggest problem is since Jefferson has been hampered is that he is he's not looking at all of his options because there have been multiple times where someone is wide open and you're just not you're just not seeing it. And last night that's that was changed. He must have the coaching staff must have gotten to him. Check your receivers. Check who you got coming, and stay in there. The offensive line will hold them back and long enough for you to find your second, third option. And they pretty effectively picked apart the San Francisco 49ers, especially in the first half. They did very much so. One of the other things, yes, very much. It was also exciting and refreshing to see. I believe the Vikings scored. They scored a touchdown in the first quarter. Yeah, um, that was exciting to see. Um, you know, I think that it's one of the dynamics that we talked about before, which is you know Thielen. Cook were there before you add in, you know, Justin Jefferson, and 
right now, Cousins doesn't have Jefferson, he doesn't have Thielen, he doesn't have Cook. And so he is reframing this offense in a way in which um, he just it just seemed last night that it was clicking and he can connect with it. Boy, you can't, and I can't speak high enough about the about the play last night of rookie wide receiver Jordan Addison. Just yeah. fantastic. I mean, well, his, he showed, um, you know, just fighting for the ball and that great, you know, roughly 60-yard touchdown that he had. Um, I thought, I think folks on TV from what I heard thought it looked like an interception. I guarantee when I'm in the stadium, it looked like an interception. And the fact that he pulled that away and, and went, down, went down the field for a touchdown was just a great play. And it was good to see um, the Vikings win last night. That was their first, it was their first home victory this season. Um, significant, great crowd. Um, all around a good environment and what they needed to do, Matt. As I was leaving the stadium with my daughter, I was talking about kind of going through some of the notes and I was saying to my daughter, I said, look, I got to do some sports talk tomorrow. And I said, that's what the Vikings needed to do. They needed to win. That, that's a game that they needed to win because what we have talked about since that Tampa game, and, and I was sitting with some, I was sitting nearby on the other side of some family. There was someone there from Tampa Bay who was wearing a Vikings, Vikings jersey, and we were talking, we were talking about the game. And he said, look, he goes, you know, Tampa Bay shouldn't have won that game here. And I said, you're right. But as I was leaving, that's a game the Vikings should have won. And I think if we laid out the season, I don't know that we would have predicted that this is a game that the Vikings should have won. So mm-hmm. they shouldn't have lost against Tampa, but they maybe shouldn't have won against San Fran. But they got the victory last night, and, and from our calculations, this is what they need to be because we now go to Lambeau on Sunday, and there's a possibility that the Vikings could could be 4-4 uh, four and four after that. Well, and, and you and I have talked about this. When you looked at the beginning of the season, the first eight games, I think most people thought 5-8 and eight because you got the Philly game, you had Kansas City, and you had in San Francisco. But you felt as rest, the rest of them, the Tampa, the, the, the Chargers game, the Bears, um, that, that you felt like th- those were winnable games. The reality is, is that if you go 4-4, four and four, you're only one game off of that. And you still have a lot of games to play where you can come back on. And I, I think you and I had talked about, it's like, okay, you lost that Tampa game. Which game are you, you got to win Kansas City. You got to win, uh, you got to win San Francisco. You got to win one of those games to make up for that. They won the San Francisco game. It definitely puts them into a position. And once and we, we got to be careful. I mean, Lambeau's not going to be a cakewalk. I mean, these NFC North games are always tough. I mean, the Bears played us pretty tough down there, but these, these right, NFC yeah. North games are tough. But if you do come away from Lambeau with a win, you know you end up you know really especially, and we'll get to this here in a little bit. But you you look at the rest of that schedule, and you, you're feeling pretty good about things at that point. Correct. I mean, this was one of the games that I think, as again going back to our kind of calculation, they needed to make up a game. And this, I think, it's fair to say that this washes off the Tampa game. Um, now that now they have to now they have they have a little bit more margin for error, but not much. But you know, it's it's not on her, it wouldn't be you know, it Lambeau's a tough environment. I was there earlier this year for a game. It was impressive to be there. I can't imagine what the energy is gonna be like on a nice fall day in Lambeau, but they play this Sunday. You know, if they win and they're four and four, I'm not saying that's that's easy to do, but if you were to lay out in front of us, what do we think is more likely? Vikings beat, you know, a five and one, and they were five and one coming in, uh, San Francisco team versus going to Lambeau. I know the Vikings have been, I think, six and oh, now seven and oh against San Francisco, 
But on paper, San Francisco is a better team than Green Bay. Mm-hmm. I understand the environment in Green Bay is going to be more difficult. But if the Vikings can win at home against San Francisco, I don't think there's a reason not to believe that they can't beat the, the Packers on Sunday. Uh, here's where, let's go back to Jordan Addison because that, okay, so earlier in the game, the interception, same, this was the same exact play. You know, in that case, Addison has the ball, I think it was Gray was the defender, wrestles the ball away from him, interception. Here's the great part about Addison. He learned his lesson because the very next time that happened, he said, that ball's mine. And he, <laughs> that was Gray's ball. And he ripped it out of his hands, and there was no one back there to stop him at that point, and that became the touchdown at the end of the second half. That's He got he finally had his breakout game, which was good. I mean, there was over 123 yards, I think it was, two touchdowns. He looked really solid. But yeah, not only that, but it's, it's, it's really encouraging when you see a rookie go out there, get beat as badly on that interception, but learn and basically reverse the trend on the other guy and get the touchdown. That was actually very encouraging to see. You're, you're spot on, sir. And one other thing I want to yeah, you spot on, great to see. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for Minnesotans to be excited about what happened. If you look at the you know cousin stats from last night, you would be hard pressed to think that that wasn't because he was targeting Justin Jefferson last night. But he wasn't. No, that was because he had other options last night. And the other thing I just want to say about Justin Jefferson, which I thought was really fun to see. I was there prior to the game. He was yucking it up, active a part of the the on-field participations, you know, with the players kind of yucking it up, actively kind of around. And then post-game, uh, he was there for, for some media interviews that Kirk Cousins was doing. And so he's showing, I think, even though he's, on, he's, on, he's, he's, he's injured right now and he's not playing, he shows he's still showing and being a contributor to this team. Mm-hmm. And I know there's concerns about, you know, whether the Vikings are going to sign him and, and what's going to happen with him here. Uh, but it was nice to see both prior to the game, then come home and see some of the post-game interviews and see Justin Jefferson feeling a connection to this team. Because I think it's important for Vikings to just know that that's someone who I think wants to be here and is committed to making sure, even if he's relegated to injury reserve right now, that he wants to contribute to the atmosphere of this team winning. Yeah, that's it. it I, I, are they going to sign Cousins? I, I got to believe. I mean, I am one of these people. Don't trade Cousins. He's he's got good stuff. He's got really good stats. I think you'd be a fool to not to let him get get away because the quarterbacks, as much as he gets a lot of grief, quarterbacks that put up numbers like that are not too common. And so I'm kind of hoping that the team resigns him for a few years at this point. That was also part of the discussion on the way home last night. And um, I, you and I have gone, you know, we should just dedicate like three hours of your show one day just talking about Cousins, <laughs> just to really go through it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, he had a lot of confidence last night and, and just a lot of leadership. And, yeah, on paper, um, but what I saw last night, um, boy, I know that I flipped and flopped on uh, Kirk Cousins' All throughout our episodes, there's a, a healthy healthy trail of, of our discussions about me flip-flopping, but I, I agree with you. I think last night he showed um, where he what he can do. And, you know, one of the things with Cousins is if you look at the stats and you look at where he's at, on paper, we would be foolish to 
not keep him, not re-sign him. Mm-hmm. But also, there's there's just some qualities of him that I think he just hasn't won people over. And one of them was his appearances uh, in primetime games. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did very well last night, very well last night. Right. And there's a lot of things that to leave that game last night to feel good about, a lot of building blocks for us to feel good about. Uh, Packers next week, we both hope they get a win. They'd be four and four. So we're going to go through their next six, okay? Uh, four road games, by the way, four road games, two home games. Um, at the Falcons, win or lose? Um, they sh- that's tough. I mean, they should win. They sh- I agree with you. I, sh- I think they should. Hosting the Saints next week after that. Uh, they should win against the Saints. And I have to tell you something. Second only to the Packers, I despise the New Orleans Saints. I'm not a big fan either, my friend. Uh, Broncos at the Broncos. They should win that game. They should win that. What are they, two and five? Yes. Yeah, two and five. And yes, I want them to win because part of the reason I don't like the Saints is because of Sean Payton and he's now at Denver. Yeah. Uh, but Bears at Vikes, that should be a win. Uh, Vikings at win. Vikings at Raiders, then Vikings at Bengals. And that gets us up to the last three games, which two of which are against Detroit. I'm going to say one of one of the other. They'll either lose at the Falcons or they 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 will they'll they they will lose at the Bengals. I think, and I think they could go four and two, which then gets us to what to eight and six with those final three games. I think that that's gonna. I think that's where the the, the season's going. If we're eight and six coming into the final three, and the final three are two two Lions, one Packers, right? Yep. Um, we're in the hunt then. Yep. We're in the hunt then. We're absolutely not. Because as of right now, I mean, we're two games. I mean, we have two games yet to play. We have two games yet to play um, with the Lions, two with the Packers, one more with the Bears. Um, we're 1-0 and in the division. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. I, there's the Depending on where this goes, uh, and there's a real opportunity for the Vikings to still win the NFC North. Um, they got to win. They got to win their games. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of reason to feel hopeful. I don't know. I, I always think that the NFL experience um, is incredibly good on TV. It's it's fun to watch an NFL game on TV. But I'm really appreciative of the fact that I was at that game last night and got to see it because I think that was a make or break game for the Vikings. And there was a lot of character, a lot of grit, and um, at least for our conversations, it was important for me to be a little bit more informed uh, seeing that game day experience. And there's just a lot of reasons to be excited about this team right now. Now, make sure you talk to your talk to your tax specialist about writing off this ticket for work expenses. Yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think we can we can justify that right now. Um, now, Matt, I, I do need to disclose to your listeners. Um, yeah. I came home and yeah. I immediately put the shirt on. You, we, you've got, we've, uh, we've got a shirt. I'll post, I'll post the picture of the shirt. I got you, I got Patrick and Brett, the two producers here as well. That is a brilliant shirt, man. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to, for your, for your listeners, I got the shirt on a, a, a wonderful a gift from Matt, um, cousin shirt. I got my Viking Zuba on right now. I got a Viking sweatshirt on right now. And I got my Vikings, uh, a Nike Pegasus on right now. So I'm full purple right now. <laughs> Uh, I'm just, I'm just bleeding purple right now. I'm so excited. Uh, real quick. We got about two minutes. That's it. Uh, what was your favorite Tom Emmer thought about being a speaker moment? 
<laughs> Jeez. I, just say, I think it would have been, I mean, the, I mean, look, I mean, Matt, you and I are, are good observers of Minnesota politics. Let's just set the table here for a moment. Tom Emmer lost in part because he wasn't considered conservative enough. That's the world we live in. Yep. And let me just say, let me put on my partisan Republican hat for a moment. It would have been historic, remarkable, amazing for Tom Emmer to not only be on the national stage at that level, he would have succeeded. It would have been great for the Republican brand. Nationally, he would have been a responsible leader as speaker. It would have been tremendous for Minnesota Republicans to have Tom Emmer as speaker. And the opportunity that Minnesota Republicans lost today by not having Tom Emmer be elected speaker is simply so profound that you can't put it into words right now. It would have just been a game-changing opportunity. And it's disappointing, it's frustrating, but as some of my Republicans' friends have said, those who are very strong supporters of Emmer, uh, the speakership doesn't deserve Tom Emmer. And that's what I'm left with today. Yeah. Uh, that uh, he, they didn't, he didn't deserve it. I wish he would have gotten it for a variety of reasons, both partisan reasons and because I'm an advocate for democracy. Uh, but it's just a sad day. It's unfortunate, and uh, uh, the mess continues. Yep, they got they can lose four votes, but you know, unless it's a far right person, they lose twenty five there. If it is a far right person, they lose twenty five on the other side. I I have no idea where they go with this. I have no idea where they go with this. Yeah, it's going to be a mess. But maybe uh, maybe when we talk next Monday, uh, we can talk. Maybe I don't know. We'll be talking. Maybe next week we might need to talk about Vikings and. Uh, speakers, maybe they have it resolved by then. <laughs> speaker Michael Broadcorp. That that will be our announcement next week. The new speaker of the house. Oh, not me, speaker. <laughs> it would be the speaker who's who's elected. <laughs> uh, Michael Broadcorp, of course, listen to the podcast. Michael, uh, outstanding. We'll talk to you next Monday, hopefully after another Vikings win uh, at Green Bay. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for the shirt and thank you for the opportunity to be on. Have a great evening. My pleasure. Michael Broadcorp, kind enough to join us. We'll wrap up the show when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Let's win this game. Score like honor your name. Go get that first. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. One thing, one last thing I want to make sure I mention here in, in about sports, but this has to do with a good development. The NHL players will be allowed to use pride tape this season. After all, with the reversal of the ban that sparked by a backlash around the hockey and among LGBTQ plus advocates in sports, the league players union and committee on inclusion agreed to give players the option to represent social causes with stick tape during warmups, practices and games. The move announced Tuesday rescinds the ban on rainbow color pride tape for ice activities that was provided to teams earlier this fall as guidance for theme nights. I have to tell you, I couldn't be more disappointed in the NFL and the NHL and the Wild and all these teams that talk about they'll gladly take LGBTQIA plus, uh, you know, tax dollars to build their facilities. They'll gladly take their money when it comes to season tickets, but showing the most minimal level of support for a part of their fan base seemed to be too too much of a bridge to cross. This isn't a big concession. It's a little one, but come on. The NHL, stop pandering to freaking Putin. Do better. Uh, Native Roots Radio is up next. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.